Lord God, we just thank you that you have brought us to this season, to this place. And may this, Lord, not just be a typical Christmas season of stress, but may it be a season of worship. So as we look this next four Sundays at different Christmas carols we sing and their meaning and their importance, may, Lord, these not just be lyrics that we sing, but we will understand more deeply what it is we're actually singing when we sing these carols and tell the story of Jesus and his birth and his redemption of us. So, Lord, guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just uh, so you know, with this Advent candle, these candles all have meanings. We talked about um, hope being the meaning for this week. And uh, there will be one pink one. Jerry, you're going to get to light the pink one because it's masculine. So, but they each have a, we have uh, hope, peace, joy, joy. This is the joy candle and love. And then finally on Christmas Eve, we'll light the Christ candle, which is the white candle. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about those as we go along. Okay, so here we are, Advent. O come, O come, Emmanuel. We sang the first verse. Do you know that, anyone know how many actual full verses there are? Anybody? All the way in the back there, Mr. Ethan. Close. Seven. There are seven. Mostly, though, when you go to hymnals, you find maybe five if you're lucky. So, But there are actually seven. I'm going to tell you why that there are seven. And I'm going to move that out of the way. So anyway, but O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it's a fitting song to begin Advent with because it has that, that kind of melancholy longing. Do you feel it when you're singing those verses? You're going to get to really feel it when you sing verses 2 through 7 after we're done here. And I want you to kind of kind of get into the mood of what this, this carol was trying to accomplish. It gives that sense of longing and hope for Messiah. To come, ancient Israel, of course, would have sung, not sung this tune, but have chanted or sung, asking, wanting the Messiah to come. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes, but it was really in a time in the church age for Advent. Now, Advent, I know, we think of these weeks before Christmas as lots of parties and busyness and and food, and we start Thanksgiving, and we don't stop eating until sometime after New Year's, right? But, you know, that's not what Advent was really originally about. Did you know that? Advent is like Lent. It's like Lent for Christmas, which means it's a time of fasting, a time of fasting and reflection. And so this wasn't really how we picked it up. We've kind of made it into something else, especially in America. But anyway, it was a chance to prepare your soul for the coming of Messiah, the Savior's birth. There is a guy named Stanley Granz who since passed away, a theologian, and here's what he wrote about Advent. He said, as members of the fast food generation, we have become so eager to get to Christmas that we bypass Advent. Our forefathers practice fasting and reflection, while we try to enjoy days filled with more Christmas festivities than we can endure. Once December 25th is passed, so is the holiday, stretching the 12 days of Christmas until January 6th, which is on the liturgical calendar if you're in that 
church background, epiphany, when the wise men would come. And that seems entirely out of place to do the 12 days of Christmas. We're tired by December 25th, the 26th, it's over. I remember uh, one time as a, a, a pastor, this lady called me up on the December 26th and she said, happy letdown day. But, you know, is that kind of true? You kind of have this sense of letdown. But we got it all reversed. Advent is supposed to be this fasting, this preparation of our soul so that we celebrate on December 25th and it is a feasting time. But the point of Advent is to face your longings. Do you like facing your longings, especially with all the bright lights and and such, but you know, it was winter, at least in the northern hemisphere, and and so you know, the days get shorter. You notice that it's sort of like, how can it be dark and it's not even four o'clock? And so we begin to face our longings, or maybe what we try to do is escape our longings. We work them away, eat them away, drink them away, spiritualize them away. Yet our longings still remain, don't they? because we long for what only Jesus can supply, just like Israel longed for their Messiah for so many centuries to come and are still waiting. So I want to challenge all of us. This is a big challenge. As we begin Advent to consider some type of fast that you might do during this month. I know you're horrified thinking, fasting, I'm feasting. But, you know, fasts can have, you could skip a meal. One meal during the day, you know, pick breakfast. Some of you probably already skipped breakfast. But just skip a meal and use that time that you would have eaten to read some Bible, scripture, pray, look and reflect on who you are. You can fast from media. You could fast from Facebook. Now, for many of you, you're like, well, that's like me saying I'm going to fast from Brussels sprouts for, for this Advent season, not much of a not much of a giving up of something since you know those little tiny cabbage heads taste so bitter. But find something, you know, maybe watching TV. Maybe yeah. One guy last Christmas he fasted from going and reading about the news because it just says that I take a, a half an hour, an hour every morning. I read the news, and all it does is get me upset. And especially this month when you read the news, it'll get you upset as you know, we go into a political crisis. And so fast from something, maybe a particular food like sugar. Now that would be a tough one at Christmas, you know, all those great Christmas treats, but, or you're not going to have desserts or you're going to not have a snack or you're going to fast from coffee. Just pick something that would be meaningful to you that would be a reminder of reflecting on your soul, on who you are as you prepare yourself for Jesus' coming on December 25th. So try the sugar one. That would really be a, a stretch. Well, in, on to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That kind of lo, that tune that we sing, we're going to tell you about, it was only added much later. Originally, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel came out of the 8th century in monasteries where they would do chants. And so December 17th through the 23rd, that last week before Christmas, um, they would sing one of these antiphons, as they called them, seven of the antiphons. Each night they would sing an evening vespers, or they would chant one of these antiphons that had these O come, O come, O come, O come, 
Actually, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is the seventh. It was the last one that they sang. The first one was O Come, O Come, Wisdom, Come, you know, Lord of Might, Come, uh, Key of, see Jesse's Branch, Key of David, Dayspring, Lord of the Desire of Nations. And so we have these seven things, these ideas, and each one of these seven teaches something about Messiah from the Old Testament. So O Come, O Come, Emmanuel has a foot in the Old Testament and a foot in the New Testament. And so it's a great bridge song in, in us, not only in mood and tempo and all of that, but in what it says. And so they took these, someone took these antiphons and they added a Latin kind of rhythm, meter to it. It's not being sung, it's being chanted in the 12th century. It would be another 500 years before someone would publish it. In in the year 1710, in Germany, they published a five-verse version, and so they left out two of the antiphons. And at that point, uh, in 1710, they added this, what we sing, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, the refrain that we have, which was kind of, you know, if you think about we're singing this kind of, oh, come, oh, come, in this minor key, and then you go to this cheerful rejoice, The refrain was to be kind of the, here's the longing, here is this point of who God is and and what we're hoping for, and then this rejoice, this happy, cheerful contrast to what the verse was saying. And so they added this refrain uh, again, and they were probably singing it by then, but not the tune that that we knew. Uh, John Piper up in Minneapolis He writes this about this hopeful Advent response, this refrain. He says, artistically, the rhythm of plaintive longing in the verses is punctuated with powerful bursts of joy in the refrain. And I like this statement. He says, it's good for Christmas carols to capture both longing and celebration. Think about that. We long. Do you feel that longing? And Last little piece of history of this candle, and then we'll get into the meaning. In 1851, Anglican John Neal translated those five verses from Latin into English, and he is the one who paired the tune that we sing with those verses in 1851. He just said some French source. So for a long time, nobody knew what French source. They couldn't find it. They just knew what it was. And so another guy came along named Henry Coffin, in 1916, and he added the last two verses, or verses 5 and 6. And so it wasn't until 1966 that they finally found where the tune came from. They knew it was French, so this one musicologist from Britain named Mary Berry, how'd you like to have that name? That would be a good Christmas name, right? Mary Berry, in 1966, was in um, Paris, and she went into the library of Paris, and she found it was a, a funeral chant from the 15th century. So there you have it, some history of Okamukam Emmanuel that kind of shows this thing started from the 8th century, stopped off about the 12th century to get some rhythm, and then was published in 1710, and then it it evolved over all that time to become what we know. And there are different arrangements of the, of the verses in, in the order. But the original order in Latin, which O Come, O Come, Emmanuel was the last verse, spelled out a Latin word. It was an acrostic that says, I will be with you tomorrow. I thought that was kind of cool. And you look that they even did alliteration and, and hidden meanings in, in that chant in the 8th century. 
So there we are, the carol evolved into what we sing. But each of those seven verses begins with an Old Testament title for Emmanuel. The day spring, the branch of Jesse, and we're going to look at those. The idea is that, that Messiah comes not only to set Israel free, but he came to set the nations free, which is, of course, a controversial subject for Jews. But it looks not just to the first coming of Jesus for us, it looks to the second coming. We, we are here, we remember why he came, why he was born, how he brought redemption, but we still long for more, don't we? We long for that second coming. We long for, in our world that feels chaotic, we long for something more. We long for redemption to be completed. So this carol captures the tension between the already, Jesus' birth, and the not yet, Jesus' second coming. Again, John Piper describes Jesus' first coming this way. The down payment is in the bank. The first fruits of harvest are in the barn. The future is sure. The joy is great, but the end is not yet. The waiting is not over. Death still snatches away. Disease still makes us miserable. Calamity still strikes. Satan still prowls. Flesh still wars against the spirit. Sin still indwells. We still groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters. Romans 8.23. Our longing continues. So Advent reminds us of hope. This hymn roots us in our distant past in the Old Testament into the less distant past of Jesus' birth into looking forward in the future to final redemption. So O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, our first verse, the seventh antiphon, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. So the name Emmanuel, you probably know this because you've read in the, in the New Testament, but it, it originally came out of Isaiah 7, 14, and it was the virgin will be with child, the prophetic verse. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Now in Hebrew, they knew what that meant. But when Matthew came along, he figured, well, it's mostly Greek-speaking. They probably don't know Hebrew or Aramaic. And so Matthew adds when he quotes, which means God with us. Great picture for Advent. God with us. Imagine 1,600 years ago, your nation has been conquered. Israel was conquered, taken off into exile in Babylon. And they hear these prophetic verses out of Isaiah. Now, they don't necessarily know what that virgin with child thing means, that it's going to be an immaculate conception, but they know something's going on, and, and they really would hold on to a verse of longing, like Isaiah 35.10. And so 150 years before they ever went off into captivity in Babylon, which is kind of over in Iraq, they would have heard this, the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing. So they held on to those kind of verses. They needed to know, God is, is God still with us? Has he abandoned us in the shores of the Euphrates River? We want to be back in Jerusalem by the Jordan River. And so they would longingly have, have these, uh, these kind of things. They're, they're, I remember in first becoming a Christian, and I was in seminary not long after that, and there was this group called LAM. I don't know if any of you ever heard of them. You can go on 
on YouTube and look up. They're Jewish singers, and they, they, their songs capture this kind of longing Messiah, look forward, the, uh, the, just the pain and some of, but yet hope in all of that. And so it, it kind of captures the mood of Advent, the group named Lamb. And so here they are by the shores of Babylon thinking about Jerusalem. But you know that whole thing of being in exile? We're exiles. Do you feel like an exile? Do you feel you're not quite at home here? Anybody? Just me? You know, we're called in 1 Peter 2.11. We are called sojourners and exiles. So when you're a foreigner, and I can tell you from having been a foreigner for almost 11 years, it's a different experience than when you're a citizen. An exile has less rights and a lower social standing and identity. And that's us. Don't you feel that, that you kind of, people look at Christians who are really walking with Jesus and often there's a sense that, you know, you're out of it. You're out of touch. You don't know what you're talking about. You're holding on to some false hope like a drug. And so you looked at, you're looked down at. Your identity is seen as lesser because you're a Christian and that snicker or whatever comes. But let me ask you, do you, when you think of Jesus' first coming this time of year, and then you look to his second coming, does it stir a longing of hope as you look to that future time? Do you think about what might happen someday? John Fesco, who's at Westminster Seminary, he, he wrote something, this is an adapted version of this theologian's, and, and it's really struck me. The birth of Christ is not just a sentimental tale to give the world some joy and a glimmer of hope in the midst of our gloomy world. Jesus is not one of a number of symbols meant to inspire kindness and good cheer, you know, like snowflakes, snowmen, sleigh rides, peppermint lattes, and Jesus. Rather, the birth of Christ is the long-awaited fulfillment of God's promise to his people, the initiation of his plan to once and for all free his people and his earth. Do you have that kind of a longing for that kind of a freedom? Well, that's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, Ransom Captive Israel. And then the next verse, which would have been the first antiphon, O come thou wisdom from on high and order all things far and nigh to use the path of knowledge show and teach us in her ways to go. So where does that come from? Isaiah 11.2, the spirit of the Lord, it says, will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. And, and chapter 9, verse 7, of often quoted verses in Christmas time, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So we long for a time when Jesus comes to set things right. If you look at the chaos of the world, the chaos even in our own government, we long for wisdom, don't we? We long for wisdom that's wise and, and righteous and will, will rule fairly, that will rule and not make the world such an unpredictable, violent, and chaotic place. We want wisdom that discerns hearts truly and judges with wisdom and and care. So we long for God's kingdom. But in the meantime, this carol verse sings to us Messiah's wisdom that can guide us personally. How do you navigate this world? How do you know? How do you know when your Christmas is over the top? How do you know when the 
struggles that you harbor in your heart. You know, oh gosh, family's coming. Because for some, Christmas is not a happy time. They look forward. They, I have memories of Christmas growing up when my parents fought and yelled and screamed and argued and broke things. And, and it's not always a pleasant memory when you think of it. And for a lot of people, that's every Christmas. Oh no, we're going to all get together. So how do you navigate Christmas without the wisdom from above? How do you know what way to go, what path to choose in your life without the wisdom that God provides? So is there an area of your life that needs wisdom? Is there something that you're saying, I'm, I'm not sure how to look at this, how to evaluate this, what way to choose? So this is that time during Advent to pray, God, give me your wisdom to know how to handle this situation or handle this decision. So come thou wisdom from on high. The third verse that we would sing, O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who in thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. Now, do you believe, since we're singing about Jesus, that Jesus was right there on Mount Sinai with Moses? Was Jesus giving the law or is it just God the Father? Because this carol is saying, he's right there. He's part of giving the law that Israel would live by for many centuries or try to live by. And so here is Jesus, and it says majesty and awe. So you're going to give the Ten Commandments. They're going to be on these, on these tablets made of stone. Couldn't Moses have just gone up there and God says, here's how I want you to live. Why all the smoke? Why all the rumblings and earthquake? Why all the majesty and awe? You ever stop and think about that? Couldn't God have just handed them to him and saying, look, it's like school. Here's the rules. Put them up on the wall. Live by them. Try to live by them. And then when you don't, you have sacrifices to pay the penalty for when you don't live by these commandments. But that's not what God did. He manifested his majesty, his awe, the power of who he is while giving these Ten Commandments. I think that's really significant because the power of God is wed into, you know, the holiness and righteousness of God. They're inseparable. It's not just here's some great principles. It's, it's about how do you live your life in power? How does it make a difference? Do you feel sometimes that God's majesty is threatening? Because I do. I think about who God is and, and you can kind of, you know, it can be intimidating, can't it? Or maybe to you it's comforting to think of God's power, his majesty, his awe, and it brings you comfort. Or maybe both. Maybe both at the same time. So we experience who God is. And so they, they put this verse in here that talked about how we live our lives, but the, the might and majesty of God in doing that. So do you see God's principles when he put that law down and you look at those things? Do they feel confining? Like rules of what I can and can't do, it makes life less fun? Or do you look, like, look at it like the psalmist that says it's like honey, Psalm 19 talks about honey to my soul. So are God's commandments just rules that, that, that pen you in or is it like honey that rejuvenates your soul, that releases God's power because you follow him? And so that's verse two that we sing, the third antiphon. And now the next one, the next verse says, O come thou branch of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny, 
From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory or the grave. So branch of Jesse, what in the world is that? Well, King David, as you probably know, when God gave him the kingdom, he said your kingdom will last forever in 2 Samuel. And so this line of David in the southern kingdom, at least until the civil war and it split, in the northern kingdom had, I don't know, 21, 22 kings, none of which were good. In Judah, the southern kingdom, after the split, which happened under right after Solomon died. So it went David, Solomon, and then the division. So after David and so, David, there were 20 kings, and only seven of the 20 were called good in the scriptures. So you kind of think, you know, and by the end, there, it, was all, it was hundreds of years since the last good king. You know, David's dynasty looked like it was over. They're conquered by, by Babylon. The northern kingdom was taken away 100 plus years earlier by Assyria. Then Babylon conquered Assyria, took the, the southern kingdom of Judah, conquered Jerusalem, which was the capital. And you think, well, there goes David's kingdom. What happened to that promise? But Isaiah didn't agree. Isaiah wrote some verses about the branch of Jesse said that it may only look like a stump is left, just a little root in the ground. It's dead. Yet Isaiah 11, one, verse 1 and then verse 10, describes God's sovereign hand. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So Jesus is sometimes called the branch. And verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, the nations will rally to him. So this branch, this, this seemingly line of, of kings from David that was supposed to be forever, that looks like there's nothing left, it's just a stump. And, you know, stumps are like usually nothing happens with stumps, right? They just, you trip over them and you have to get a stump grinder and pull it out. And, but this stump stays because there's a shoot, the branch, the shoot. And that branch is the rod to smite the serpent. That branch is the staff to guide God's people. And that branch is the scepter of God's eternal rule. So that staff, the shepherd's crook, had three purposes. The crook would go and rescue God's people, but the blunt end they used to strike the sheep. So it smites Satan's work. And it's still a scepter of God's eternal rule. And this whole verse includes that idea of victory over the grave. And I don't know if Isaiah 25, 8 is the first appearance of this idea of death being swallowed up quite so poetically, but that's where Paul would get it in 1 Corinthians 15. Isaiah 25, 8 says, He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. So Jesus' birth, when we think of him coming as this little baby, We need to look ahead because his birth is the beginning of reversing the curse from the garden. The branch of Jesse will win the spiritual war to set us free. And so it's just not only about a birth, it's about the life and the death that will set us free from Satan's, as it says in the verse, Satan's tyranny, giving us victory over the grave. So how is Satan discouraging your hope? In Jesus, victory. Do you feel like your life is a life of Jesus' victory or are you discouraged? And especially at Christmas when things get so stressful. 
when you have to deal with, with crowds or, or with people coming and all of the parties or all of the events and the busy schedule and all the cooking and running to the airport and weather that makes it all difficult. So how has Satan discouraged your hope in Jesus' victory? He brings disappointments, especially at this time of year. He brings in disappointments to distract us from the meaning of Jesus' birth. That's maybe why we sing these hymns to remind us. So what's distracting you right now? Think, here it is, December 1, the beginning of the Christmas season. Advent starts today. What's distracting you from the true meaning of Christmas? That's the branch of Jesse who came to set us free. Then the next verse, O come thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high that we no more have cause to sigh. So the key of David is mentioned in Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Anybody remember where you've heard that quoted? Nobody? Revelation, we just did it in chapter 3. I think it was the Church of Philadelphia. And the key of David is the authority and control over the kingdom, that Jesus has the key of David's kingdom because he's the one who fulfilled that covenant promise in, I mentioned to Second Samuel, it's actually chapter 7, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that branch of Jesse. He would come set up his eternal rule that would last forever. And I don't know if David understood all of that, but God holds the key to his kingdom. So when we believe in Jesus as God's fulfillment to his promises, the door to God is open wide. Now, maybe you've struggled lately. Maybe you don't think that you, you know, gosh, I've perf- I haven't performed the way God wants me to. I've done some things I shouldn't or I haven't done things I should. And so why would God open his door to me? But that's kind of the part of the promise is because he opened that door, it's not dependent on how well you perform. It doesn't matter if you've had a really bad week or a really bad month or a really bad year and you're thinking you've got to crawl your way back up to God. His door is open. The key of David has opened that door and he offers it to you and just says, come through the door that he opens. Some have said, well, what if I've committed the unpardonable sin? You ever heard that question? I've committed the unpardonable sin and then they might tell you some horrible thing that they think they did. But the unpardonable sin, there's only one thing the New Testament says is unpardonable. Because, I mean, if David, the key of David we're talking about, if David committed adultery, committed murder, and he's still the king, he wasn't taken out, God even waited at least a year to confront him with that sin. If David can make it, then so can you. There's nothing that you've done. The only unpardonable sin is rejecting. It's unbelief. And it says blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which means uh, disbelieving the testimony of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is God and has come to die for you. Because he said that verse into those who said, well, you're doing works, your works are of Satan. And, and they disavowed and refused to believe in Jesus. And he says, everything is forgiven except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, where you reject God's testimony to you to say, come to me, come to, I provided Jesus. And you say, not for me. That's the only unpardonable sin. 
And so if you think you've messed up, look at King David. He messed up a lot. Others have messed up a lot. The Apostle Paul says, I was one of the worst in all how I behaved under a religious cloak. So there's nothing that you have done that God can't open that door and say, come to me. Next verse. O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thy advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. So day spring means sunrise, the morning star in the east. It symbolizes light dispelling darkness. John talks a lot about Jesus as the light of the world in chapter 1. But Jesus is the day spring newborn light of the world and that whole idea of hope and the light. Because you know at dawn often it's just so dark, especially because you know you can get up relatively later than versus summer and see the dawn. And it's pretty dark out there at 6 in the morning. And so all of a sudden when the lights come, it's a big contrast. In Isaiah 9 too, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined, speaking spiritually. Luke 1 would pick up on this and add, The rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So especially this time of year as the days get shorter and for another three weeks, what darkness are you facing this Christmas? Do you have some, some, something that you would like the day spring light to come and say, just send that darkness away, shine, give me clarity, let me understand. And then just, Lord, I just ask, take away some of these situations that feel distracting. So that's our last, second to last verse, which is five of the antiphons. And then it says, O come desire of nations bind. In one, the hearts of all mankind. Bid every strife and quarrel cease and fill the world with heaven's peace. So the word desire of all nations, this one in Latin was rex, which is the Latin word for king. So it's really talking about Jesus as king. Haggai 2.7, I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So this offers Jesus as king. And notice it says in there, all nations. This wasn't just a prophecy for Israel. It was for all nations. That God never intended Israel to be this little closed community that says we are the chosen people and everyone else stay out and we're going to just stay encapsulated in ourself. Kind of still going on that mentality. But that's never God's intent. It was always to send the light out and bring people in. It's our goal. It's our role, too, and what we live for. So he comes to offer relationship, God does, to every tongue and tribe. And in him, that's where we're going to find peace. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men, doesn't just mean peace at Christmas. And it doesn't just mean a good, warm feeling because the family's around and getting along that day. It means peace that's established into the depths of the heart and the nation's will not be making war. It says in Isaiah 2.4, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Imagine that day. And what's the basis of your hope? 
for ultimate peace. When you think, oh, I want peace on earth, do you think that really it can only come from God? We can't manufacture it with our governments or a United Nations or any other man-made thing. The only hope for ultimate peace is in God. Same is true for your life. You might try lots and lots of different things, but ultimately the only thing that's going to fulfill you and bring you peace is God in your life. So as we close, and we're going to sing those verses in a minute, but have you ever prayed, Emmanuel, God be with me? Now I don't just mean you're at North Park Mall and saying, help me find a parking space in Jesus' name. But something deeper. When you hear Emmanuel, God with us, do you ever think, really? Because I don't feel him right now. There aren't any tingles. Life is not feeling all that blessed. Some of you are in a difficult spot. Some of you are facing an empty chair this year, this season, because somebody you wish was there is not going to be there, maybe through death or maybe they can't come home for Christmas, distance. They live in another part of the country. They're, they've been posted military to an overseas spot. And that makes Christmas hard, as you remember. But this carol reminds us of who Jesus as Messiah is in the order, the original order. He's the wisdom who guides us, the might who protects us, the branch of Jesse who defeats death, the key of David who opens the door of heaven, the dayspring who pushes darkness away, the king of nations who brings real peace to all the earth. This is the Emmanuel, the God who is with you right now, no matter what. And that changes everything. In the darkness of Advent, we wait and hope as we anticipate the glory of the incarnation to arise. And that is God with us, Emmanuel. So we're going to sing about that in a minute, but let's pray. And while I pray, if the singing guys and Gretchen can come on up, and then we'll sing verses 2 through 7. We might stumble through it because you've got to get used to new words with new, a little bit The rhythm and the meter is the same, but we're not used to singing them with some of these words. So let's pray. Lord God, help us to capture the spirit of Emmanuel this season. And may we, Lord, take seriously some kind of a fast to prepare our hearts, something that would help us focus away from all of the feasting and festivities and parties to who you are. Help us, God, to find that light, to find that hope that you bring to us through Jesus Christ's birth and beyond, that as we remember his birth, we look forward to his second coming when you will make redemption complete. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.